You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. Hopefully everybody can see the notes as well. Hopefully my screen is sharing. James, can you give me a thumbs up if you can see the notes? All right, sweet. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Um, It's been several weeks now that we've been doing our virtual services. Um, I remember the very first or the first or second one that we were up here, uh, Adam McLeod and I were talking about how crazy it would be if we were still here doing this Easter Sunday. And here we are, it's Easter Sunday and we're still doing this. Um, And so it's crazy to think about just how long it's been already that we've been separated from being able to gather and then to not be able to gather on Easter Sunday when um, this is the day that we commemorate and, and celebrate uh, even the beginning of the fact that we would gather on a Sunday um, and that's to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's sad being up here today, not being able to gather in person with everybody. Um, but uh, as I've been encouraging you, let, let this be a, a time where it uh, creates a deeper longing and a deeper appreciation for the days that we can fellowship together in person. Um, once again, we certainly look forward to that. Uh, John chapter 20 is where we'll be today. And um, you know, uniquely, uniquely this year, going through the Gospel of John, uh, it worked out where we were able to land on uh, John chapter 20 and the account of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so the past couple of weeks, we have been building to this point. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus on the cross and the cross being God's declaration that Jesus came to save sinners of all kinds in fulfillment of promises made long ago. And he has Uh, Now that he has finished that work, he calls us to respond in faith and obedience to him. And so we talked about the cross being um, a a declaration that all types of people and all types of sinners are welcomed into God's family. And we see that through the sign that's placed on the cross, multiple languages implying that there would be people from uh, diverse backgrounds present at the crucifixion of Jesus. And so Pilate, maybe unbeknownst to him, uh, is is communicating the gospel message through various languages being presented at the crucifixion of Jesus. And then we see the great sinner being crucified next to Jesus, being welcomed into paradise with Jesus. And so it reminds us that uh, the worst type sinners who deserve the worst type punishments can get saved in the final moments of their life, right? And that it reminds us that ultimately salvation is all about Jesus and what he accomplishes because the thief on the cross certainly can accomplish zero in the amount of breaths that he has left before his life ended on this earth. And yet Jesus looks at him and says, you will be with me in paradise. And so strong reminder to us that the worst sinners can be saved in their final moments because salvation doesn't rest on our performance, doesn't rest on our good works, doesn't rest on the amount of good deeds that we can do. Uh, It certainly rests completely on the work of Jesus. And then last week, Um, instead of jumping straight to the resurrection, I told you that I felt like it was very important to look at the burial of Jesus, Uh, that John goes to great lengths to talk about how Jesus was buried, because ultimately it helps us to see the truth of the resurrection, right? That we, we see that Jesus truly died, and we see that he was publicly buried, uh, so that it, it gives further credence to the resurrection claims. And so last week we talked about the factual evidence supporting the verified death and the public burial of Jesus, giving us the foundation needed for believing and hoping in the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. He says that um, Christ died and he was buried, right? And he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And so the whole process of how Jesus died, how he was buried, and now how he is raised to life, it's all a big fulfillment of scripture. And so we talked about believing that he really did die, um, that he he died without broken bones, which was important, right, from the Passover lamb standpoint, that the Passover lamb could have no, unbro- could have no broken bones. And so Jesus' bones would need to remain uh, unbroken during this whole process. And we saw last week that instead of having to break his legs to kill him, he was already dead, that God sovereignly oversaw the death of his son so that the bones would stay preserved so that he could be that perfect picture of a Passover lamb. We talked about the the Romans being those master killers and the prophecy of the piercing of the side in Zechariah 12 being fulfilled on the cross. And then 
We talked about believing that the body placement was known, making a resurrection probable, that uh, the, the, the friends of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they, they came and they publicly claimed the body of Jesus, right? Pilate gave the body to these two men, and then they publicly buried him in a well-known location, uh, the rich man's tomb, which was a prophecy fulfilled from Isaiah chapter 53. And so all these details give further reason for us to believe what we're going to look at today, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. So I turn your attention now to John chapter 20 and verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I posted for you yesterday um, an article that helps to merge some of the confusion and maybe potential uh, discrepancies that we might feel in reading the resurrection account from John chapter 20 in comparison to some of the other gospel accounts. Um, Some of the other gospel accounts have more women showing up here at the tomb than just Mary. And so uh, I think think the article does a great job of helping us to see the continuity between the different gospel accounts and how— Different eyewitnesses are writing things that they specifically remember, and yet they do so in harmony, right? There's, there's no tension here. There's no discrepancy. There's no uh, contradiction. Um, but John specifically writes, as we've seen all along in this study, he specifically writes the details that he wants to include to help us believe. And so we're going to see that more this morning as we see what it is that John felt needed to be communicated in regards to the resurrection of Jesus. Our summary sentence for this morning, the details surrounding the tomb of Jesus give us great reason to put our faith in his resurrection and our hope in all of his other promises to come. The details surrounding the tomb of Jesus give us great reason to put our faith in his resurrection and our hope in all of his other promises to come. For our kids, the empty tomb is a strong reason for believing that Jesus is alive again. What I love about uh, the Easter account, uh, particularly the way that John writes, is that he writes in a way that allows us to to view this apologetically, meaning that that we can defend our faith um, and the reasons that we believe Jesus is alive because John gives us such great evidence to back that belief, right? That we're not... We're not being expected to uh, to believe a Sunday school story that our parents told us or some Sunday school teacher told us, and we've been expected to just keep believing this as though there's no grounds for it, right? This isn't a fairy tale that we've been told. Uh, in fact, extra biblical accounts um, help us to see that what's contained in Scripture 
was believed by skeptics as well, that uh, these details that, that are surrounding the, the burial of Jesus, the tomb of Jesus, the fact that the tomb is empty, um, help us to see that the resurrection is the most probable thing to do with the evidence. It's the most probable thing to believe when all the evidence is considered. And so we're going to see that John includes specific details here this morning for us, uh, particularly around the tomb of Jesus. And his desire is that we would believe in light of what he writes, that, that we would see Jesus to be the son of God as he presents himself to be. Right. So we're going to jump right in, uh, give you some points today of, of application. Number one, uh, let me challenge you to examine the evidence regarding this tomb. Examine the evidence regarding the tomb. John gives us evidence to consider here. And what you see in this, this account is, is even consideration by the characters in this story, uh, giving examination to the evidence, right? You've got Mary Magdalene who shows up early in the morning. We know from the other gospel accounts, she's not by herself, right? She comes with other women. Uh, she is pinpointed as the one that, that John draws attention to, most likely because he's going to draw attention to the fact that she is the first to see the resurrected Jesus, right? We see that later in this passage. And so John draws attention to her and her presence at the tomb very early. But we see that, that she assesses the situation, makes some presumptions about the situation, and then runs and comes and talks to Peter and, and John, right? And then Peter and John run to the tomb, and they kind of examine the evidence as well. Uh, we know from this passage that John believes in light of the evidence. We know from some of the other gospel accounts that Peter walks away still kind of baffled by it, not really sure what to do with the evidence that's been presented to him. But John would, would have us this morning to examine this evidence regarding the tomb, to, to use it as a further assurance of our salvation. So let me give you some of the, the evidence that we see in the text this morning. Number one, the stone was rolled away and the guards were absent. The stone was rolled away and the guards were absent. The other accounts that, that we can read from Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the, the concern that the ladies had coming to the tomb this early in the morning, um, whether they would be able to figure out a way to remove the stone, right? They're coming because we talked last week how Joseph and Nicodemus had to hurry the process of burying Jesus in order to get him into the tomb to, uh, to not violate their, their Passover and Sabbath standards. And so the, the understanding was that the women would come later to kind of finish that process. And, and we even know from other texts that the women saw specifically where Jesus was buried so that they could come back and finish the process, right? But as they're coming to the tomb, they're concerned about how to handle the stone that's in place. How are they going to remove the stone in order to enter the tomb? And we see that when Mary Magdalene and the other women show up, it's still dark but the stone has been taken away from the tomb. And, and we're assuming that the guards are either still in their, their, their fainted, um, confused state, or they have already vacated the scene as well. Uh, we know that they end up fleeing back to uh, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, explaining to them exactly what happened, that the angel showed up, the earth shook, and, and Jesus was raised, um, that, that, that they weren't, uh, the, the victims of an attack by the disciples trying to steal the body, right? Um, and so Mary shows up, and, and, the, and the stone has been removed, right? It's been rolled away. Number two, the body's missing. We know very clearly that, that Mary runs to Peter and, and John because she can't find the body of Jesus. Now, we're not given details here about whether she entered the tomb, whether she assessed the situation, whether she saw the burial clothes, but she was nonetheless convinced that the body wasn't there, right? That the body was missing. The body was absent. So she goes running uh, to try to get help as far as what do we do with this information? We've got to find the body. We've got to find Jesus. They've, they've taken him. Somebody has moved him. Body was missing and it was never produced in history. I want, to, I, want, I want you to think about that. The Jews had worked so hard to kill Jesus, to put an end to his ministry, and yet there's never an attempt to produce the body of Jesus. And they had ample opportunity to do so, right? It was, again, fully known because they went to Pilate, right? 
it was fully known that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were the last two individuals to handle the body of Jesus. There's zero evidence historically that these two men were ever questioned as to what they did with the body, right? Where, where did you put it? Where did it go? Why did you come back and take it later, right? These are the two individuals that took responsibility for the body of Jesus. And there's no historical evidence that they were ever approached or, or questioned about what they did with it, right? The Pharisees don't even go to Pilate and say, hey, who do we need to talk to about the body of Jesus? Who buried him? Because they've already heard what happened from the guards, right? They know exactly where the body is. They, they know that it's missing. They know that, that it's not been stolen, right? And, and they have to bribe the, the guards to even make up a story that the body was stolen. But there's no attempt to try to produce the body because the body is gone. The authorities have no reason to question the placement. They, they knew where the tomb was. We're not told from scripture, but I'm assuming that the Pharisees made their own trek to the tomb and would have also seen exactly what Peter, James, and Mary and others saw as well. A tomb that was empty beyond the, the grave clothes of Jesus. Um, and there's no ability to produce this missing body. Number three, the, gra- the grave clothes were left undisturbed. The grave clothes are left undisturbed. We know that when Simon Peter and the other disciple, who we assume to be John, show back up at the tomb, that, that they, they draw attention to the fact that when they look in there, they see something, right? We, we talk about the tomb being empty, and it's certainly empty when, in regards to the body of Jesus, but there is something there. there. There's an important piece of evidence that is left in the tomb for us. It says in verse 5, stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there but he did not go in. So John sees the clothes. Then Simon Peter comes running up behind him. He goes into the tomb, and John makes a point to show that Peter saw the linen cloths lying there as well, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Peter and John show up. They notice these grave clothes, um, and and it leaves a lasting impression, at least upon John. Uh, The undisturbed grave clothes uh, is the convincing piece of evidence that John mentions as the contributing factor to his own belief. Now, maybe hard for us to understand 2,000 years later, but the way that this is written, John is drawing attention to the fact that that these grave clothes are laying there just like they would have been if the body of Jesus was still there, right? The, The distinction even between the head cloth from the rest of the linen cloth the distinction that's being made there is that the way he would have been wrapped is it would have been in two separate pieces, right? And so what John is trying to communicate is that they come running up and they look into this tomb and what they see is the grave clothes undisturbed, that they're still laying there like Jesus's body would have been laying there and yet they're empty, right? There's no body there, right? Like it's the, it's the, um, the picture that you might get when somebody tries to fake whether they're laying in bed or not. They may, they may try to pose the, the comforter and the sheets to look like that they're laying in bed, but then when you kind of push on it and, and feel it out, there's no body there, right? But it, it looked like there would be a body there. That, that's the impression that we get when John and Peter come running into this tomb is that, hey, the grave clothes are still there. Oh, his body's still there. Mary's mistaken. No way. His body's not there. But, but it looks like it should be there because the grave clothes are still laying there just like they were when he was buried. The implication here is that the body went straight through the clothes. John believes this is the only explanation for what he saw, that Jesus is back from the dead. Look what it says. Then the other disciple, verse 8, talking about John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. That word saw there, it's the, the Greek word that, that it means seeing with understanding. So I envision John going in there, seeing these grave clothes, pressing on them, amazed, bewildered at the fact that there is no body here, even though the way that it's laid out implies that the body still should be there. And it says that when he saw this, when he went in and he, and he saw it, he, 
He gained understanding. He put his hands on it. He's touching it. He's assessing the situation. He's examining the evidence. It says that he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So John's not anticipating or expecting resurrection here, right? That they had missed that. They hadn't, they hadn't really wrapped their minds around that expectation that they should be expecting to see the, the resurrected Jesus. Um, but when he gets into the tomb and he sees the grave clothes undisturbed, the only thing that makes sense to him is that Jesus is back from the dead. He, he, he's believing in the resurrection. Now, Mary shows up and she doesn't deduce that. Maybe she's too frantic about what's happened. She jumps to the conclusion that, man, somebody has moved his body, right? That the only thing that makes sense is that his body has been moved, potentially stolen. John and Peter, I think, take a little bit more time to assess the situation. And they don't have to jump to that conclusion. Instead, the conclusion that John deduces is that now he's back from the dead. His body, his body has been raised. His body has been raised through these burial cloths. John's the first person to believe in the resurrection, according to these accounts, which explains why he's so passionate about us believing that Jesus is the Son of God, right? Because he was one of the first, maybe the first on the scene to believe the resurrection, right? To believe that Jesus was back from the dead. And so he wants to project that same belief to us. He wants us to believe the same things that he believes. For us, I think this, is, this element is so crucial to our own faith and belief. Um, this, this fact that the grave clothes are identified as being in the tomb and being undisturbed. I think this is a crucial element to our faith and belief in the response to this evidence. I, I think we need this piece here because I think it reaffirms our faith that Jesus is back from the dead. Because if the grave clothes weren't there, if the grave clothes hadn't been left there, we could potentially speculate and maybe even justify the thought that somebody took the body, that somebody robbed the grave, somebody ran off with the clothes and the body, um, and that maybe he's not back from the dead. But the fact that they are there, the fact that they are undisturbed, really gives strong credence to the fact that Jesus is back from the dead. Because here's the thing, grave robbers don't take care of graves. They don't take care of grave clothes. And if you were intent on stealing the body of Jesus, you would be far more concerned about getting it out as quickly as you could versus taking the time to not only take his body out of the clothes, but also put them back in place as though he was still laying there, right? The undisturbed grave clothes, I think, are such a crucial piece to our faith and belief in the resurrection. Um, I think John includes this specifically because it helped him believe it. Right? It helped him believe that Jesus was truly back from the dead. Now, the other time that grave clothes are mentioned in, in the book of John is in Lazarus' resurrection. Right, And you'll remember that when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he comes out wearing his grave clothes. Right, He comes out wearing the things that they had bound him with. And Jesus has to instruct the people to take them off of Lazarus. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reminder to us that Lazarus's resurrection and Jesus's resurrection are different resurrections, right? One type of resurrection, Lazarus's resurrection, he'll require those grave clothes again, right? He died again in history. At some point, he went back into the tomb. And he has the same hope as we do, that he'll be resurrected again one day, and that he'll enjoy the same type of resurrection this time as Jesus, the type of resurrection that will never use uh, burial cloth again that will never go back into a tomb. So Jesus's resurrection different in that he comes through the grave clothes, right? Because his resurrection is now in a glorified body, the same type of body that we long for. The stone was rolled away. The body's missing. The grave clothes are left undisturbed. Number four, the resurrected Jesus was seen and touched. Seen and touched. Now the picture that we have here in regards to the other accounts as well, Mary shows up with these other women. Mary jumps to the conclusion that somebody has moved or messed with Jesus's body. And so she leaves to go get Peter and John. It's while she's gone that these other women have the encounter with the angel and learn of Jesus's resurrection. 
they then most likely leave to go get some of the other disciples. While they are then leaving, Peter and John show up, and they start to figure out that, hey, the body's not here. John believes the body hasn't been moved, that Jesus is truly back from the dead. They then leave, right? And then Mary comes running back up again, and now she's there at the tomb by herself. In verse 11, she stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, well, they've taken him away, my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She's still convinced that, that the body is gone and it's maybe gone forever and she'll never figure out what happened, right? She has this great anticipation of coming to, uh, to put his, his body to rest that morning, shows up and finds that it's gone, jumps to the worst conclusion possible that somebody has stolen his body or moved his body and never pauses to try to figure out what, 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 what actually has happened. What is the evidence actually pointing to? It's only then when she begins to talk to these two angels and then eventually turning and talking to Jesus that she figures out what has happened. She's weeping over the loss of this body, doesn't know where it is, doesn't know who has taken it. She turns around and she sees Jesus, but doesn't know that it's Jesus. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. Right? She's, she's so consumed about where is the body of Jesus, she, she's missing the fact that the body's right there in front of her. The body not separated from the soul of Jesus, but once again joined with the soul of Jesus in this glorified state. Jesus speaks to her in, in a way that she now recognizes calling her name, and she turns and recognizes him as the teacher, and she clings to him, right? She, she wants to hug him. She wants to hold him. She wants to, to not lose him again, and that's when Jesus has to say, look, like, I'm not, I'm not leaving yet, right? Like, I'm not going back to my father yet, but that's coming soon, and I need you to be an instrument of communication to get the word out that, that I want to meet with everybody before that happens, right? She saw him. And she also touched him, and she had to be told to quit touching him, to let go of him so that he could, he could meet with everybody else. And so the evidence that John lays out here is that the stone was rolled away, the body's missing, the grave clothes are left undisturbed, and the resurrected Jesus was seen and touched. Mary's encounter with Jesus is the grounds for her belief. Her response changes from, we can't find the body, to I've seen the Lord, right? She shows up and announces to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, not I found his body. I've seen the Lord, right? When we talk about loved ones who have, who have died, we talk about them now in terms of two separate entities, right? We talk about their body and we talk about them, their soul being with Jesus. We took our kids to the cemetery um, as we always try to do it at Easter time. And, and we went and saw my, my grandparents, my dad's parents uh, right here in Peachtree city. And so we're talking with our kids about death, and, and we talked about uh, Bill and Mary Vincent laying there in these tombs, but it just being their bodies, right? That we, 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 we were there where their bodies were, but we talked about how their souls are with Jesus, and that, that when Jesus comes back, he's bringing their souls with them, with him, so that they can be reunited with the body, right? And so Mary's concerned about where the body of Jesus is, but when she sees him, she now talks about him as being one again, right? Not the body of Jesus, but Jesus, right? We talk right now about Bill and Mary's bodies and their souls being in heaven. There's coming a day where we'll just talk about Bill and Mary Vincent again because their bodies and souls will be reunited. And it won't be, this is where their body is. This is where their soul is. It'll be, this is where Bill and Mary are. They're, they're, they're rejoined with their bodies. And so, Mary makes that connection, and she now talks about the fact that she has seen the Lord. She's seen the Lord. The implication from, from this, um, you can change this slide. The implication from this that I want you to see is that true believers keep believing more as time goes on. True believers keep believing more as time goes on. 
John is identified here as one who believes in the resurrection here. Now, I don't believe for a second that this is the first time that John believes, right? Because we've already seen in this gospel the disciples being presented as individuals who believed in Jesus as he was doing different things, right? What we have said is that this gospel is not a gospel just for lost people. It's a gospel for believers as well, that John wants us to believe initially that Jesus is the Son of God and to keep believing that he is the Son of God. And so what we see here is John believing once again or believing more once the evidence of the resurrection is presented to him. He had not previously believed that Jesus was going to be resurrected. He didn't get it. He didn't understand Jesus' teaching. But now that he has seen the evidence, he believes again. He believes more. And that's the picture that that should be uh, true of us as well, that you believed initially. You crossed from death to life, darkness to light. That could have happened when you were four or five years old. That could have happened when you were in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, whatever the age that was. But as we grow in our faith and we learn more about God, we ought to be believing more about him, believing more in him. As our knowledge and understanding grows, <clears throat> our belief should be deepening into, into Jesus. And it doesn't mean that we've gotten saved again or we got saved for the first time. It just means that we're a true believer because true believers believe more as more knowledge comes to them about who God is. And that's exactly what happens with John here. He didn't get it before, but he quickly believes now that that new knowledge has been given to him. He, he assesses the situation, sees the tomb empty, and he says, you know what? I believe in this. I believe that Jesus is back from the dead. True believers sit in a Sunday sermon and hear potentially new things from God's word that they hadn't previously seen before because in their immaturity or their youngness, maybe they had never studied this passage of scripture. Maybe they've never heard this, this piece about who God is. True believers get exposed to that and they believe more, right? They believe deeper in who God is as more comes to them. And that's what we see with John here. John's a great example to us of being a believer who believes more when more is given to him. And I would hope the same for you as, as you continue to grow in your faith, as more knowledge of who God is comes to you, as you are, are further exposed to, to God and how he works and moves, that you would believe more in him. I know growing up in, in my life, um, I didn't understand the sovereignty of God and the control that he has over the universe in my younger years. It wasn't until later in life when I began to, to really read and study scripture on my own and, and really began to wrestle with difficult passages of scripture that I really began to rest in the sovereignty of God, right? And so I, I believe that I'm a believer because I, I can see a pattern in my life in my life of believing more and more and more as I've grown, believing more and more and more as I've aged believing more and more and more as more has come to me, right? My, that would be my prayer and hope for you. Examine the evidence regarding the tomb, right? See these things. And then number two, determine what you, have, what you believe happened to the body. For our kids, Jesus's body was never found, but plenty of people saw him alive. We have this great responsibility to decide what do we believe happened to his body? Years ago, I taught uh, in our youth group uh, back at Mount Gilead two important questions that every, every human being needs to answer. Who do you believe Jesus was, and what do you believe happened to his body? The, the answers to those two questions determine the rest of your life and what you do with it, right? Do you believe that Jesus was just a good teacher who died and whose body went missing, but but ultimately there's a there's a there's an explanation for it? Or do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God whose body went into a tomb and then three days later it came back to life and now he's ruling and reigning next to his Father in heaven? Now, that leads to two different destinies or two different uh, endings. 
And so we have this great responsibility to answer that question. What do we believe happened to his body? And that's the question that the, that the disciples and Mary are wrestling with here in this passage. Number one, did someone relocate or steal his body? Mary Magdalene's first assumption is that the body has been stolen by grave robbers or moved by the authorities. Resurrection is not on her radar. Backing up to the beginning of John chapter 20, what do we see? We see that she runs to Simon Peter. We see that she runs to uh, John and she says, we don't know what happened. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. Right? Resurrection's not on her radar. She shows back up at the tomb later in the day, and it's still not on her radar. Right? She, she's still thinking that somebody has moved it. But the longer she stayed, the more she assesses, the more she's exposed to, she realizes Jesus is back from the dead. Right? He presents himself to her. There's, there's, there's many a skeptic that believes that, that Jesus' body was moved, that it was stolen, that it was relocated. Um, but the burden of proof now falls on the skeptic to, to explain why did they steal it, who stole it, what did they do with it, and why did they leave the grave clothes behind? Right? There's, there's so many questions that believing that his body was relocated leaves an individual said earlier, grave robbers don't typically show care for the grave clothes. There, there's major questions that would surround whether the body was relocated or stolen. And, and Mary's identifying this possible theory. She's saying, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm believing. She's not sure who did it. She's not sure why they did it. But she's arguing with what she thinks is the gardener saying, hey, tell me where it is. And I'll take responsibility for it. And the truth of the matter is that his body wasn't moved. It wasn't stolen. It was raised, right? Which leads us to number two. Did he rise from the dead? Did he rise from the dead? Is that what happened to his body? Well, we know that the body never turned up, right? I told you earlier that there's no, no place in history that we can go to where anybody gives any credence to a belief that the body was ever found, Right? There, there, there was no massive search with the body turning up to where then it could then be paraded around and said to everybody, look, he's still dead. Not only was the body never found, we know massive amounts of people saw him. It starts with Mary, but then it builds from there. Right? The two people on the road to Emmaus see Jesus. The, the, the apostles see Jesus. Peter sees Jesus. 500 people, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, see Jesus, right? Multiple people keep seeing Jesus, and then massive amounts of people see him even at one time. So sometimes people try to speculate and say that this is a big hallucination. The problem with, with the hallucination theory is that the main ingredient for a hallucination is an anticipation of something happening, right? And there's no anticipation in any of the, the records that we have. The disciples were anticipating or expecting a resurrection, they don't see the predictions in Scripture until much later. Remember when we talked about Jesus uh, talking about the, the temple being torn down. Tear it down, and in three days I'll rebuild it. Nobody really understands what he's saying, right? And it says in the text, it wasn't until after the resurrection that the disciples remembered that conversation and believed in the fulfillment of Scripture, right? So they weren't reading Scripture predicting a resurrection, they believe in the resurrection and then look back into scripture and see, oh, this was being talked about a lot. Not only was the body never turned up, not only does massive amounts of people see him, we know radical change occurred in the followers of Jesus as well. Right? Something I want you to remember, and I can go to the next slide. The emptiness of the tomb does not in itself prove the resurrection, but it contributes a strong testimony to it. That the tomb was empty is a fact of history, right? Even skeptics believe the best, smartest, most educated skeptics believe that the tomb was empty. It's a fact of history. But these other theories, the, the Jesus fainted theory or the, 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 the body was stolen theory, these theories that try to explain why it's empty, they're fraught with more problems than that which affirms that God had raised Jesus from the dead. 
what, what am I trying to remind you of this morning? I'm trying to remind you that our faith is not, um, it's not placed in, in, in um, a, a story or an account that doesn't have great evidence to back it up, right? That, that our faith is grounded and rooted in historical evidence that Jesus died by master killers, that he was buried in a known tomb, and that when people showed up three days later, the body was gone, the grave clothes were left undisturbed, and that when all the evidence was considered, his followers walked away saying, the only thing that makes sense is that he is back from the dead. The implication for us here is that your answer to that question about what happened to his body should be the driving force for whether you believe and obey anything else the scripture has to say, right? The reason this question is so important is because it determines what we do with the rest of scripture. If Jesus is still dead, if his body has an explanation for it that, that doesn't include resurrection, we don't need to do anything else that the Bible tells us to do. We don't need to obey it. We don't need to gather on Sunday. We don't need to do anything that we do as Christians if the body has an explanation for where it is. But if he is back from the dead, according to Acts chapter 17, it means something for the future. And it means that he's coming back to judge this world. In Acts chapter 17, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which we, he will judge the world in righteousness. Right? We need to repent and believe. Why? Because he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead, right? Telling us here that we need to do something that's repent and believe and get ready and prepared because a judge is coming. A judge is returning to this earth, a man judge, a God man judge. And it's guaranteed to happen. The assurance that we have that he's coming back is that he was raised from the dead for this. Determine what you believe about the body. Number three, communicate to others the truth of resurrection. Communicate to others the truth of the resurrection. For our kids, the gospel message we share is that Jesus is alive. It's the foundation of our message. But what is the truth of the resurrection? What does it do for us? We see two things in this passage, I think, that they give us great encouragement today. People who believe in the resurrection, this is what the resurrection does for us. Number one, it turns our sorrows into joys. It turns our sorrows into joys. Remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 16? Four chapters earlier, but hours before his crucifixion, right? He's talking with his disciples about his looming death. He talks to them about the, the weeping and lamenting that they will experience because of it. He says in verse 20 of John chapter 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Right? The Pharisees got their Saturday. They got the Saturday where they could rest and believe that their work was done. They rejoiced on Saturday that Jesus was dead. Jesus tells his disciples, you'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And I believe Mary being the first to see Jesus, even though John believed first, I think John, Mary gets to really experience what it felt like for sorrow to, to turn into joy almost instantaneously, right? She goes from crying about Jesus and his missing body to, to clinging to the body, right? The body reunited with that soul. And her sorrow is turned into joy. I'm sure the disciples were tempted to question the, the power of Jesus, the, the, the goodness of Jesus, how, how, how all this could have unfolded. How could God the Father let Jesus die when he was the promised Messiah, right? 
questioning the power of God, the goodness of God, the benevolence of God, the, the sovereignty of God. I'm sure those questions are, are flooding them on Saturday. And then all those questions come to, to answer on Sunday with the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and, and what it does is it gives us assurance that if God was in control during the, the most sorrowful, most evil, worst time in history, if God remained in control during that time and he remained good as well, right? So all these bad things are happening, but they're all for good purposes, right? Like the suffering of Jesus leads to our salvation. Well, using that greater to lesser argument, it means that God always remains in control and he's always good, even in the, the lesser sorrows of life, right? If you haven't had a chance to listen to uh, the, the video that Snowbird put out about the sovereignty of God and the coronavirus. Let me encourage you to listen to it. It's about 30 minutes long. Even if you can't listen to the whole thing, the first 10 minutes are extremely valuable and worth your time. In that roundtable discussion, they talk about the fact that so many people today are questioning whether God's in control of all this. And if he's got the power to control it, how can he be good and be letting so many people die from this, right? Like if God's good and he's powerful, why doesn't he stop the coronavirus from happening? And sometimes it leads people to this really, really bad theology where they walk away from bad, sorrowful situations and they say, you know what? God must not be in control of it because I believe that he's good. And if he's good, he would fix this. I know an individual particularly that I'm thinking of who has experienced tragedy in his life. And it has only reaffirmed his bad theology that God's not in control of bad situations. And in this Snowbird video, those guys talk about a scenario too, where some bad things were happening to this, this young girl and pastors and, and theology professors tell her God wasn't present. God wasn't there. And he wasn't in control of what was happening in your life. Right. If that's true, if God's ever not in control or, or ever not good, then, then, it, then it can't be that he was in control and good in the worst times possible during the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet what we believe is that he was in control and that he was good. Right. And that he was working good in the midst of that. He was turning sorrow into joy. And Mary gets to experience that. Mary gets to experience that her sorrow her trials, her difficulties, her weeping and lamenting turns into joy. And it's a reminder to us that all of our sorrows will turn into joy, right? That God's working good in every situation. The resurrection turns our sorrows into joy. Number two, the resurrection inaugurates a new type of relationship with God. As this conversation plays out between Jesus and Mary, Her sorrow turns to joy. But then Jesus instructs her to do something. Tells her, don't cling to me. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. This is the first time in the gospel of John that Jesus references followers as brothers. These are his brothers now. Not his disciples, not his servants, but his brothers. It's what's being talked about here. This new relationship being talked about or being communicated. In uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And then you can go ahead and write down Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 through 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. This is right after the, the, the often quoted passage about God working good for those who love him, every situation. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right? Talking about us, that, that we are now in this family relationship with God. Right? In Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 10, 
For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You skip down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver to all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. We now enter into this new adoptive relationship, and it's possible now because of what Jesus does both on the cross and through the resurrection. The implication for us here, this, this, this truth of the resurrection, the sorrow and the joy that gives us this new relationship with God, it makes the promise of love and the promise of inheritance now guaranteed as a result of the resurrection. And these truths have to be communicated to others. The promise of love is guaranteed now as a result of the resurrection. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, that we should be called brothers with Christ. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The promise of love, the promise of inheritance is guaranteed now. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We have this promise of love that God now gives to us as brothers of Jesus as children of God. And we have this great inheritance that we look forward to our own resurrection because of the resurrection of Jesus, because he's the firstborn amongst many brothers. We have this great promise, this great inheritance waiting for us that we've seen this past month in our studies in our small groups. First Thessalonians chapter four, that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he is bringing the Bill and Mary Vincent's that have gone before us. They're coming with him, and we're all going to experience resurrection together. And it's this resurrection that is the foundation of our faith, right? It's why we follow Jesus, because he is back from the dead. So when we consider the evidence that the, the, the stone was rolled away, that the body is missing, the grave clothes are undisturbed, people saw the resurrected Jesus. We reached the point where we deduced that Jesus is back from the dead. His body wasn't stolen. His body wasn't relocated. He didn't faint and come back from the dead. People didn't hallucinate all of this. He truly raised from the dead. And if we believe that, if we believe that, if we believe that God remained in control in the worst times possible, we can have great faith that even as bad times continue to come, that he remains in control and that his love is upon us and that we still have this future inheritance that awaits us. No matter what the, the fallout from the coronavirus is, no matter how many jobs are lost, no matter how much our life changes, the thing that's not changing is the inheritance that awaits us, right? First Thessalonians 4 hasn't changed, right? First Peter 1 hasn't changed. It's, it's unfading, right? It's not being altered by anything that's happening in this world right now. And because of those promises, we keep following him. We keep following him. I want to close by reading uh, something that I wrote two years ago, which is crazy because it seems like just last year that I wrote it. But two years ago, I think we were in Revelation, and I wrote something about just how important the resurrection is to me and how it is the foundation of my, my faith. Most people's reasons for abandoning the Christian faith can be tied to disappointment in one of three areas. One, they become disappointed in God and how he has chosen to orchestrate their circumstances, oftentimes related to loved ones or earthly treasures being lost, 
right? So God takes away something from us uh, that we hold dear to us. The circumstances of our life aren't what we desire. Two, they have become disappointed in other Christians who have acted contrary to what they are supposed to be as Christ followers, usually through gossip, slander, and hypocrisy, with those actions resulting in great hurt, right? So God lets us down. Other people let us down. These are reasons that people walk away from the faith. The third reason is they've become disappointed in the Christian life in general, reaching a point where they now believe that the offerings of this world are better than the perceived restrictions and mandates that come with following Jesus, right? So people walk away from Jesus because they believe God let them down or other Christians let them down or just the Christian life in general let them down. All these types of disappointments are real and they create questions that need to be addressed through discipleship. But they are all incredibly awful reasons to walk away from the Christian faith. My faith is not grounded in God performing up to my expectations for him, which thankfully he normally acts in a far better way than I could ask or think. Nor is my faith grounded in Christians behaving like I think they should. For my experience has always been that people rarely do what I think they should do. I also believe that if the Christian life is properly explained at the point of conversion, anything less than martyrdom can be counted as a surprise, and even martyrdom should be viewed as a blessing. The foundation of my faith, my decision to follow Jesus, and my continued to resolve to stay on that path is directly tied to this empty tomb. Therefore, the only logical reason for someone to walk away from Christ is if one has shifted in their belief about that empty tomb, now believing the resurrection to be a sham. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, we have nothing. But with the resurrection, we have every motivation and resolve to follow the lamb wherever he goes and wherever he takes us. As we learn in Acts 17, 31, if the resurrection is true, so is the second coming. Don't let circumstances or human relationships or earthly stuff change your mind about following Jesus. The facts remain that he is alive, and if he is alive, he is returning. And unless you can prove to me otherwise, I plan to keep pushing through my disappointments regarding my circumstances, my experience with other Christians, and my longings for a better life, because that better life's coming when he returns. Those disappointments are very real, and they just aren't good enough reasons for me to leave them. Paul never said if the earth ends up being older than I first thought, my faith is in vain. He never said he would believe in Jesus for as long as the circumstances of his life made sense. He never said if God took a loved one from him, then his faith would be futile. The only reason Paul ever gave for walking away from the Christian faith would be if the resurrection story was discovered to be a lie. The enemy would love for our youth to get bogged down by our professors who claim that science contradicts God's creative story. The enemy would love it if our emotions and feelings would react negatively towards God who brings trials into our lives to grow our faith. At the end of the day, the enemy loves for people to abandon the faith without ever explaining away the resurrection, the very substance of our faith. <clears throat> While God will continue to act in ways I do not always understand, at the end of the day, I have no other explanation for the data surrounding the resurrection story. For this reason, even if it becomes my only reason, I'll keep on believing and I'll keep on holding fast. That's what I want for you guys. You're going you're gonna to have circumstances that disappoint you in life. You're going to have other Christians that disappoint you in life. And there's going to be times where the Christian life doesn't feel like it measures up to what the earthly life looks like. But we don't follow, we don't follow God believing that he'll always do the things that we want him to do. We don't follow God because um, of what he, he promises to offer us in this life, right? We follow God, at least I do, because I believe Jesus is back from the dead. And I believe that because he's back from the dead, he's coming again. And he's coming to fulfill all the promises that my heart and soul long for. And that the enemy tries to convince me can be fulfilled in this life. Right? That's the, that's the big promise from the enemy, is that the, my soul's deepest longings can find fulfillment here. And I keep finding that I can't find that type of fulfillment here, right? Jesus says, you'll find that fulfillment when I come back. When, when, when you experience the glorified resurrected body that will be with Jesus for eternity. That was kind of the, the thing that I left my kids with at the grave is that when Jesus comes back, we get to be with him. 
forever. And we can speculate about what that life looks like, but what we are assured of in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that we get to be with Jesus forever. And we need to keep believing that. And the older we get, we need to keep believing it more, that Jesus is back from the dead. We've looked at the evidence. We've seen it in Scripture. It's the only thing that makes sense. He's back from the dead, and we need to keep believing it moving forward. Our application today. I want you to write out why you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. What specifically leads you to believe his body is alive again? And here's why I want you to do this, because like I shared with you yesterday, when I was looking at the resurrection accounts and the differences, I don't think often enough about how those things harmonize for me to just speak off the cuff about it, right? If you had asked me two days ago, hey, what's the explanation for how the resurrection accounts aren't contradicting each other? I would have I would have had to stop and think and probably tell you, I'll get back with you on that, right? The resurrection itself, though, and why I believe Jesus is back from the dead and why I don't believe any of the other theories, I mean, that's like second nature to me. I've taught it so much. I've studied it so much. I could have hours of conversation with you about why I believe the resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that makes sense. And I want you to have that same type of, uh, of grasp and understanding of why we believe this too. So I want you to spend some time writing out why you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. What, what is it from scripture? What is it from outside of scripture that leads you to believe that his body is alive again? Because that's the foundation of your faith, right? And I want you to be able to come back to that regularly. Whenever you're tempted to doubt God and his goodness and his power and his authority, that we come back to the fact that this is why I follow him because I believe that Jesus is back from the dead. And here's why I believe that he's back from the dead. Right? For John, it was because he saw those burial cloths, and he saw them undisturbed, and he looked at that and he said, I believe that he's back from the dead. For Mary, it was the conversation that she had with him. Right? I want you to know why you believe in the resurrection of Jesus and to be able to talk about it um, with, with familiarity, Right, that you know why you believe what it is that you believe. For our family uh, worship questions this week, Number one, how does Jesus' resurrection shape our views about death moving forward? And then number two, what things can we look forward to when our own resurrections take place? These are two things that that my family talked about at the graveside on Friday night. I would encourage your families to have similar discussion this week. Um, How does Jesus' resurrection shape our views about death moving forward? Um, and, And number two, what things can we look forward to when our own resurrections take place? Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you so much that you are an all-powerful God who is also all good. And in the midst of tragedy and sorrow on the cross, you never relinquished your power and you never stopped being good. You were always working for our good in the midst of that. And God, we praise you and thank you today that the resurrection is true, it is real, the tomb was empty, The body went missing because the body was raised, not because it was relocated, not because it was stolen. God, we're thankful for the evidence that you left behind to assure us of that reason to put our faith in it. The burial clothes were undisturbed. Grave robbers don't take great care with grave clothes. We're thankful for the eyewitness accounts of people who saw the resurrected Jesus. We're thankful for the historical accounts that provide all this evidence that gives us great cause and reason to put our faith and trust in this. But God, we know that that there's a faith element to this beyond just the facts because the Pharisees had the facts too and they rejected it. So God, I pray that if there's anybody, a part of our service right now that's listening, that you would call them to repentance and belief, that they would respond to the truth of your word that hearing the facts isn't enough. We got to do something with it. We examine the evidence and then we respond to the evidence. So God, I pray that you would bring people to the point of believing that you were, uh, that you're back from the dead. And God, we thank you that the resurrection gives us assurance that our sorrows will turn to joy just as you promised. And God, we're in the midst of a sorrowful time right now where there's a lot of uncertainty 
It reminds us so much of how we are not in control when you are. Um, if anything, the coronavirus should be reminding us that we're not in control versus causing us to doubt your control. So God, we're thankful that you remain in control of all this. And God, we pray that you would, you would bring it um, to the end goals that you have for this whole situation. Because God, we know that you work and move for the good of your people, but ultimately for your own glory. And so God, we are thankful that in the midst of all this, you're going to receive great glory. And we may not fully understand how that's going to play out, but God, we pray for it. We ask for it. We ask that your kingdom would come in this situation and that you would receive great glory. And God, we look forward to, to the future hope that we have, that we're brothers now, but we look forward to the great day where we reap the benefit of the love and the inheritance that you've promised to us for all eternity. Help us to be faithful to communicate those truths to others. Um, in the midst of this uncertainty where people are doubting, God, help us to be that reassuring voice that can bring truth about the resurrection to those who are in need right now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.